Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. Good morning, everybody out there who's listening. Uh, This is Annie calling from the 3CR studios on a Saturday morning. If you're later listening to us, uh, that's okay. Uh, We'll include you in the chat. I'm here on my own today. Everybody else is busy, but that's okay. I've got plenty of things to tell you about. Uh, We're going to get a catch-up on the No Homeless person ban later on we're going to uh kevin's going to join us and do the this is the week that was humphrey who was uh, fast asleep last week no he wasn't there was a technical difficulty he is going to be talking to us later in the program but before all of that we're going to uh listen to Anne Summers. Anne Summers, Breakfast with Anne Summers was part of the uh, Women's Rights at Work conference and uh, people were eagerly waiting to hear what uh, Anne Summers had to say. Of course, she's a uh, very important figure in the feminism fight in the Australian landscape. Uh, but we'll talk, uh, we'll, we'll hear what she's got to say. It was very, fa- it was quite fascinating, actually, the breakfast. It was last Wednesday and it was in the loading bay at uh, Trades Hall and uh, which is turning out to be a real ho- a hot spot for very interesting activities, I'll have to say. The Loading Bay at uh, Trades Hall with all its hand-painted insignias on the walls, which I actually saw someone painting, which is uh, gives a sort of finesse of history when you actually see somebody applying themselves to something like that. But anyway, it was uh, well, very well attended, of course. And uh, I lo- lifted my head up and found that Bill Shorten, the almost Mr. Shadow Man, sl- uh, slipped in and sat in his spot to uh, listen to uh, Anne Summers speak and be part of the general uh, interesting discussion that happened at that breakfast uh, it was quite quite interesting. Anyway, um, so that he he attended the uh, breakfast on International Working Women's Day here in uh, Melbourne on uh, Wednesday the eighth. So that was quite, that was an interesting little tidbit about the affair. But anyway, uh, we've got her uh, speech, and uh, one of the most interesting things about Anne Summers, of course, is that she doesn't sit on her laurels. It's all about action. She's all about action. And if you were listening to uh, Stick Together, there was uh, Will Stoker's uh, talk about how we're going to uh, 
deal with uh, gendered violence and a campaign strategy. And she talks about uh, 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 2025 for major change. That's the target date. But uh, Anne Summers, in her speech, revises it to uh, always the eye on the ball in in terms of uh, hanging things on historical and... uh, uh, motivating uh, t- uh, time frame. She said uh, 2022 because, as she says, it's the uh, anniversary of the uh, Whitland government's arrival on the scene. Quite fascinating. Anyway, before we go ahead, I've got to listen to something very important. Camp Anarchy is happening again this Labor Day long weekend, March 11th to 13th at the gorgeous Bush Camp at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. Get out of the city, camp or stay in cabins, share delicious meals, sing along by the campfire and paddle on the creek. Over the weekend there will be a program of workshops and skill shares. Childcare is provided and costs are kept to a minimum. Anyone interested in anarchist ideas is welcome. To find out more information, go to campanarchy.org. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Before we go on to Anne Summers and uh, remind you that you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, uh, I've got a couple of things. One of them is uh, the death of Trevor Grant. Trevor Grant was an extraordinary fellow. Uh, He died last uh, Friday of uh, a cancer uh, work-related asbestos cancer Something that he uh, uh, was given basically as a copy boy when he, uh, many years ago. Uh, this uh, brings to mind again the uh, ongoing scourge of asbestos, and uh, uh, he uh, he died last Friday at sixty-five. He will be. Uh, he he was a extraordinary fellow. He's a, he was a um, mainstream journalist um, focusing on uh, sports reportage. But in his retirement, he joined the uh, the crew at Three CR, and he ran a, he uh, ran a couple of programs. Uh, one of them was uh, Refugee Radio, which continues, and What's the Score Sport, a program that examined how sport has been hijacked by the corporate world. Next week, I'm going to uh, play uh, some stuff I collected when he launched a book that was uh, uh, examining the uh, uh, the war in uh, Sri Lanka and the effects on Tamils and the uh, genocide that was being practiced is being practiced in that uh, sunny isle, and uh, it will be great to hear uh, Trevor's voice again and to uh, people to remember that actually this is a live issue, and he devoted a great amount of time and support, and a not inconsiderable uh, media experience to getting the Tamil's plight onto the mainstream uh, agenda. He is a quite extraordinary fellow, uh, incredibly effective activist, Trevor, and he will be sorely missed as an activist and as a person. What a great man. What a great person. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving Social Security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 94 52 
8666. It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. My name's Will and I'm the Campaigns and Industrial Officer here at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Melbourne Trades Hall. I take this moment to affirm that here we are union. We are united as part of a great movement of workers. Our diversity is our strength. Our solidarity is our power. We rise together. Prejudice and discrimination, including misogyny, racism, homophobia and all other hatreds have no place in our movement. Today and every day we commit ourselves to achieving justice and equality for all working people. Solidarity forever, comrades. All right. Now, with the formalities out of the way, um, I'm just going to make a couple of announcements. The first is there is more food coming. I apologise that the early hungry hordes have eaten the later hungry hordes out of house and home. So there is more food coming. Um, Can I also just, can we thank the trade union choir one last time? That was, as always, an amazing performance. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors, our supporters here, Slater and Gordon and Australian Super. They've had us, helped us in having this event and they've all also helped us in running the Raw Festival this year, so that's fantastic. Um, my second job right now is to introduce uh, our first speaker. It was really long. the the bio that I got. So I've cut it short and a little bit. I apologise for that. But I am going to cover off on the main items, I think. So uh, Dr Anne Summers is a best-selling author, journalist and thought leader across multiple continents. She's the author of eight books, including the classic Damned Whores and God's Police. She was involved in helping start Australia's first women's refuge. She was a journalist with the National Times then Canberra Bureau Chief for the Australian Financial Review and the paper's North American editor. She ran the Federal Office of the Status of Women, now the Office for Women for Bob Hawke, and was an advisor on women's issues, among other things, to Paul Keating. In 1987, she was editor-in-chief of Ms, Australia's, America's landmark feminist magazine, and the following year, with business part- partner Sandra Yates, bought Ms and Sassy magazines in the second-only women-led management buyout in US corporate history. In November 2012, she began publishing Anne Summers reports, and she has been made an officer in the Order of Australia for her services to journalism and to women. Would you please welcome Dr Anne Summers. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy International Women's Day. Can you hear me all right? I was told to speak very close. Speak, if I speak too close, I won't be able to read my notes. So maybe I'll just shout. How's that? Okay, well, I'd like to um, say hello, everybody, especially to acknowledge the president of, um, presence of Bill Shorten, uh, federal leader of the Labor Party. Very pleased to, to see you here this morning, Bill, and uh, all other guests. And um, what I'm going to do this morning uh, is to just tell you a little bit, bit about a document that I launched last night at the AEU dinner. Um, and something I've been thinking about for a long time is I realised over the past year or so that there's been a bit of a shift 
in the way in which people think about feminism. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the days not so long ago when an awful lot of people, I'm speaking of women here, used to say, well, I'm not a feminist, but... By that they mean they take the money and you know, they take the abortion rights and they take the privileges that, 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 that feminism fought for, but they weren't going to sully themselves with the name. Well, that seems to have changed in recent years. And now everybody's a feminist, Beyonce, all the movie stars, um, everybody can think of, everybody except Julie Bishop and Michaela Cash, they're <laughs> all feminists. But no, what does it mean? It just seems to me that there's been a lot of books lately by young feminists, Clem Ford and various others, and they're all fantastic books. They're books that set out the, the personal stories, the rage, the, the injustice in Clem's case in particular, the extraordinary and disgusting and totally uncalled for trolling that she's had to endure online, a new form of crime against women that we're still trying to get our hands around. But it seemed to me that all this uh, self-proclaiming of feminism and all of this laying out of our uh, grievances and our issues, one thing that we haven't been doing as much as we used to do and as I think we need to get back to doing is setting out a plan to do something about it. And so I decided late last year that we needed a women's manifesto and that manifesto would set out in very specific, precise detail everything it is we need uh, every law, every platform, every policy, every change of attitude in order to achieve full equality. And what I've done is I've drafted a document. It's now available on my website. You can just go to ansummers.com.au slash speeches. It's there. And I just want to say to you, this document is its not just a work in progress. It really is meant to be a collaborative document. I'm not calling it my document. I'm calling it our document. And what you'll see there is what I've done so far, but you'll also see there's an awful lot of gaps in it where I'm hoping uh, that you, and by you I mean, um, I'm particularly hoping unions will jump in and get involved in this. And let me just explain how I've laid it out and what contribution you might be able to make. Because if this is not going to work unless we revive, and I'm not trying to disparage the work that anyone here is doing or has done, but I do think the women's movement per se has been... Um, perhaps not quite as busy and as active as it could be, and I think it's time that we revive that. But we need something to organise around, we need a set of concrete goals, and we need the fierce determination to go after them. So I have constructed what I claim, what I am arguing, and I hope that you will agree with me, what I'm calling the four basic principles of women's equality. These are the four basic principles that are also our goals on which every single thing we want can be um, accommodated. I'm thinking of them in a way as being a little bit like our political architecture. We have four pillars that are holding up the house of what will eventually be the palace of feminism. And each of these pillars uh, helps support all of the policies we want. Let me just tell you what they are because it's very, very simple. The, first, the four policies are the four goals, the four principles, the four pillars, whatever we want to call them. Number one is financial self-sufficiency. Number two is reproductive freedom. Number three is freedom from violence. And number four is the right to fully participate in all areas of public life. What could be more simple than that? Now, if you go through them, and I'll just quickly do that, um, I'll just try and demonstrate to you that I think everything we want can be accommodated by those four principles. For example, in order to have financial self-sufficiency, and by that I mean to have enough money 
or the means to earn it, not to have to rely on any world, anyone else to survive or thrive. In other words, if you want to go into a relationship, you can do it on your own terms. If you need to leave a relationship that's not working, you can. We have so many women, you know, come to women's refugees, for example, who've endured years of abuse and violence and they haven't been able to leave because they didn't have the money. And some women in the end leave even without the money. Things get so desperate. But uh, if women have financial self-sufficiency, that gives them a, 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 a dignity, a respect, but most of all, the physical wherewithal to, to manage their lives. And that is the basis of all dignity. So under financial self-sufficiency, obviously, comes education. You need at all levels and all forms of education for which you are capable. Girls should learn everything within that education um, and not just stick to the girly subjects. We, are, we, need the same, we need the same access to post-school education, be it technical college, be it university. We must be able to um, have access to postgraduate ex education and to combine that with having kids if we want to. Women need to have the same employment opportunities to men, including full-time employment. Too many Australian women are not always by choice in part-time employment. That depresses our wages. It certainly depresses the extent to which women participate in the equality. And of course we must have equal pay and equal opportunities for promotion, for training opportunities and all the other benefits that exist in a particular workplace. Women must be free from sexual harassment, from from pregnancy discrimination. Childcare must be available, flexible, affordable, and most of all, shared between all parents. Uh, women must have the right to keep their jobs while, while pregnant and to get paid parental leave while they are taking time off in their jobs to have the baby. And of course, women must have superannuation, including while they're on paid parental leave, and if necessary, receive top-ups, either from government or employees, during their working life to ensure they have adequate retirement income. Now there are probably a few more things we can add and that'll be your job. When we get to the workshop part of it, which won't be today but later on, that will be the thing that I will be asking you as trade unionists with a vast knowledge and experience in the areas of women's employment, what else do we need to bolster up this pillar of women's self-sufficiency to make it realistic? The second pillar, the second goal, the second principle is reproductive freedom. And by that I mean the ability to determine when and if to have children. Women must be able to access effective and affordable contraception backed up by safe, legal and affordable abortion. No brain that you think. Um, very sad what happened in Queensland last week. Let's hope it's just a tactical retreat. Um, women must have access to health services, including screening and scare for female-specific conditions such as breast, ovarian, cervical cancer and other services needed to ensure sexual health. Women must be able to secure pre- and postnatal care for their own maternal health and that of their baby. Number three, freedom from violence. Our bodies and our minds must be our own. Women must be safe from rape and other forms of sexual assault and must have the right to be, busy, be believed and their complaint taken seriously if they suffer an attack. Women must be able to access laws that adequately address all crimes of violence and legal services that enable them to seek advice and seek legal redress if they choose. Women must be free from domestic and family violence of all kinds, physical, psychological, financial 
and any other type of controlling and domineering behaviour on the part of a family member or intimate partner. Where needed, women must have ready access to emergency crisis services, including women's refuges, in order to be safe from violence or other threats. Again, under this pillar, under this uh, principle of freedom from violence, there are many, many other topics and issues that we want to include and spell out, but this is just to get us started. And then, uh, fourthly, equal representation and participation in public life. We should be part of decision-making in all areas of society. Women should participate fully and be represented fully and fairly at every level of government, including the public service, in the companies that make our economy, in the not-for-profit sector, in arts organisations, in trade unions, in the military and in the churches. Now, this is a very deceptively, uh, deceptively simple agenda. Everyone's saying, sure, what's supposed to disagree with that? Well, nothing, of course. Uh, it's when we start adding in, uh, well, what do you think about this and why, where does that issue fit in and where does that fit in? That was where, that's when the funnel starts. And I have attached a worksheet to the manifesto um, whereby you can start filling in your own issues. And I would ask that people start to do that. And I'm hoping that we'll have some kind of a sponsoring organisation that will take this over and I'm hoping we might be able to have maybe a big conference or something like that at the end of the year uh, to try and bring it all together into some master document then becomes the, as Goffert used to say, the programme. Um, only with us it'll be the manifesto uh, that we can then fight for. But that's going to take us a bit of time. Now, in the meantime, I don't think we can afford to wait. And so I want to, I, what I want to announce, uh, to get announced today, as I mentioned last night, is that I believe we should take one thing from each of those four principles and go for them immediately. I think we should have a five-year plan, and I'm calling it EQ22, Equality by 2022. And I've chosen 2022 because that is the 50th year of the election of the Whitlam government, the first government in the history of this country to commit to women's equality. And it did a huge, it did more than any other government before or since to, to legislate for and to create the conditions for women's equality. Unfortunately, many of the things they did um, were ripped up by subsequent gov governments or some of the things like the family court didn't work out quite the way was intended at the end and it's one area we clearly need to reform. But basically the Whitlam government set the tone and uh, we had to pick up the pieces from there. So my, my extremely um, ambitious, uh, might say, you might say um, uh, heroic uh, um, um, list of demands that I'm going to tell you right now, my EQ22, and I hope you might agree with me, there are four things, one from each of the pillars. The first one, Legislated equal pay. <laughs> I thought I'd get pushback on that one. <laughs> I, I would have thought you'd say, no, we have to go through the courts, we have to do it sector by sector. We have to do it. I think no. Bill, if you can legislate for, for it. <laughs> but if Bill can legislate for penalty rates, he can legislate for equal pay. So I say we need equal pay legislating, uh, we need federal legislation it, it, mandating equal pay for all women in all jobs. You know, as Mary Gordon said, first woman in the High Court in Australia, she said back in 1979, equal pay was won in 1969, and again in 1972, and again in 1974, and she said in 1979, and we still don't have it. And I'm saying in 2017, 
and we still don't have it, except in a couple of sectors and a couple of areas, and that's great. But we all need it, and we all know that the rate of um, gender pay gap has not only stalled since 1980, it has gone backwards. So number one, legislated equal pay within five years. Number two, decriminalisation of abortion in New South Wales and Queensland. Now, I know you've already done it down here. You've already done it and good on you for doing it. Now, please, can you please lend support to New South Wales, which is going to be the hardest, but Queensland's not turning out to be that flash either. So we cannot return to the dark days of women risking criminal prosecution for having abortions. Every other Australian state in the Territory has decriminalised abortion. It's time those two states did too. Number three, specialist domestic violence courts in every state. Now, this is something that... I seem, to have, I seem to have lost my notes here. But this is something that was recommended by Quentin Bryce in the Task Force on Domestic and Family Violence, which she ran in Queensland a couple of years ago. And one of her recommendations was to trial a specialist domestic court. And that was done, I think, in Southport in South Queensland. It has been a very big success. And she's now recommended, and I understand that Anastasia Palaszczuk has agreed to roll this out throughout areas of Queensland. I think it's a very important initiative. One, it's because you have, then have specialist legal knowledge uh, on those courts to deal with family and domestic violence. But secondly, and perhaps almost as importantly, it shines a light on it. It draws attention to it. It's not just one more thing in a list of crimes being dealt with by a magistrate in a, in a crowded suburban court. So it's one way of really drawing attention to it. Um, and so number four... Uh, I, I'm requiring within five years we have 50% gender quotas for all parliamentarians, all cabinets and ministries, all government boards, and um, um, there was one other thing, but I've lost my notes, so I can't tell you what it is. But you get the idea, you get the drift. <laughs> Basically, uh, an ambitious gender quota um, for the areas of public life that matter the most. We get more and more women into decision-making powers and uh, that's our fast track to equality. So that's a lot to think about for one morning, but I hope I've uh, got you um, stimulated and thinking that the battle has really got to begin in earnest in a very focused way. We have to be very organised. We can't afford to be you know, dilly-dallying on, on, on any side issues. We've got to be very focused. We've got to know what we want, and we have to get after it. So I really appreciate uh, having the audience this morning to tell you about this. I do hope that you're willing to get on board, and um, I'll be uh, very interested to work with you. Uh, you can find the document at my website, as I said, annsummers.com.au slash speeches, and um, it's all yours to get working on. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Were you one of the people that went down to Robert Doyle's house? No. 
No, 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 but you did have the original idea. I, I no, well, I, I, I'm not, no comment, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah. But all I know is that I've seen it on TV, and I was a bit shocked about they used our ideas. Someone took our ideas. I don't know who it was, but someone must have taken our ideas and put it on the on Herald Sun, the media, radio station. I don't know who must have done that. And now it was all over Mr. Fat Piggy, blah blah blah. You know, yeah. So well, yeah. it's pretty funny. It is fun. Thanks for We're, interview. I'm very yeah. grateful for this. We're outside the uh, town hall and very shortly there's going to be another demonstration, a sleep out, a talk out, a, a speak out, a, a, feed, a, a, feed, a feed out uh, in front of the town hall to uh, protest the, the ban, uh, the no homeless ban uh, protest. That's what it is, a no homeless ban protest in Melbourne. Channel 10 here, is it? Oh, I can just see right there. Yeah. Yep. I'm from 3CR. Do you want, can you tell me why you're out here today? Yep, I'm out here today um, because basically I was homeless for eight years, uh, over seven years ago, and now I'm quite passionate about supporting the rights of homeless people and I think that these new rules that are coming in are absolutely horrible and they're going to have a devastating effect on people's mental health and the public as well. It's interesting because I was just noticing over there the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and one of the bottom lines there it says provide affordable housing and reduce homelessness. Yeah. <laughs> Quite ironic really. Yeah, talk is very cheap and they like talking um, but they need to put their money where their mouth is so yeah. yeah. Thanks very much. No worries. Your side of the story and why you think this is a good idea and uh, we'll, see if, we'll see if Robert Doyle uh, decides to answer or not. So Trevor you've got a... a You've been following this story, this uh, homeless issue, and what are you saying? You, you've actually invited Robert Doyle to come onto your YouTube station about it? That's correct. Well, I, I'm studying a Bachelor of Screen Media, and the more filming I do, the better I get. So I'm running a YouTube channel, and one of the really cool things is being able to feature these sorts of you know, issues, because I think they're really important. And I've been featuring a lot of the protests recently on my channel, Weekly Catch-Up Out and About with Truth, and... Last week I actually sent Robert Doyle an email and basically invited him to put forward his side of the story and why he thought that this might actually be a positive aspect to, to bring on to the homeless. Um, I'm, I don't see it as positive, but obviously they think it's a good idea and I thought, we'll see. I haven't got a response yet, but we'll, we'll see what happens. The homeless, uh, no homeless ban is a non-affiliated uh, action group isn't it it's part of um except for the homeless persons union that's correct isn't it no it's just a it's a community campaign yeah it's not run by any particular political group yeah and so it, the interesting last week there was a group of people went down to uh, Doyle's house since um and that wasn't an action that was uh, arranged it was just a group of people who decided to do that that's right so that's how community action works isn't it Ah, oh, shows you how easy it is. It just takes people who care enough about something or are pissed off enough about something to do it. You don't need to be part of a political group, no, or an organisation. Yeah, now we're outside uh, the town hall tonight because this is an, the, another event in the calendar against the homeless ban that uh, the council is pushing. But it's a really sad day today, isn't it, uh, because of what happened over in Footscray? Yeah, so we're also combining it with a vigil for all those who have lost their lives whilst homeless. Three people, it sounds like, were murdered um, on Wednesday evening in an abandoned factory that they'd been staying in for about a year, apparently. They had a garden growing there. 
They were friendly with the neighbours and a 52-year-old man has been arrested and I just heard from somebody that he's made a comment today in the media that he was out to kill somebody or something like that. So it's just... It's absolutely horrific. And Although it was quite interesting that uh, the council the night before had passed a motion giving it uh, development rights, that site. couldn't speak to that. I don't know enough about that. Yeah. All right, so it's, it's a visual tonight as well. Yeah. yeah okay. Are you hoping that uh, a, a range of people will turn up? Hoping, but I would guess maybe 30 to 40 people perhaps. Uh, is it looking good regarding um, putting pressure on the council? Uh, well, I've heard that um, last week there was over 300 submissions submitted already and most of those were opposing the ban. Um, but there's been a lot of crap this week. A lot of people have lost their mind because a few people went to Robert Doyle's house for 15 minutes and made some noise and... Um, yeah, campaigners have got a, a bit of stick on um, social media saying that it was a bad tactic and, you know, you turn the public away. So um, just don't, don't know where people stand, really. What, one little action in regards to uh, at being outside someone's house compared to people's futures and having no homes? That's right. You think, yeah, where's the, pers- where's the perspective? You have to ask. Hmm. Thanks, Kelly. So you were saying that you think that things have changed since you were homeless? Yeah, I've noticed that obviously it's grown. So there was when I was homeless, there was a lot less of us. And we kind of had our turf. Um, so we'd beg up and down the street, but it would only be a certain area. Um, we called it cold biting back then. So if someone was cold biting in a certain area and you started to, that was a big no-no. So you had um, little turf wars going on. But everyone kind of respected each other, so it didn't happen that often. Um, but now there's, it's totally changed. People don't walk around asking for money, I've noticed. There's just none, really. They sit down with a sign, which was probably a lot less common back when I was homeless. I think they've made definitions about they're not allowed to beg for money. Yeah. It's ma- they've made it illegal, and so what they can do is sit with a sign that expresses who they are and why they're there and, yep. and asking people to... appealing to people's better nature. Yep. Yeah, I wonder whether they get more or less money that way. That would be really interesting to ask someone that because like, I think it does stop one problem, which is people getting harassed all the time and people would appreciate that because sometimes every now and again you get someone who turns on you and starts abusing you because um, you don't give them money and then they get um, crappy about it because they think, well, you've got money and they feel a bit entitled. I'm not saying everyone, I'm not stereotyping, but that does happen. So, Well, people, some people might feel threatened by it because it's yeah. not... It's, no, when you think about the social aspect of it, you don't... Generally, people ask to have conversations with someone else and so if you're a homeless person, your position is completely different from other people within the framework of the street. Yeah, definitely. And I think anyone who's walking down the street and gets approached by anyone, there's already this, oh, I don't like, this is uncomfortable. Like even today, trying to get petition signatures, people look at me straight away like I'm trying to sell them something or get them to sign up to something. Yeah, you've walked into my personal yeah, space. so straight away they're just... Like, half of them don't look at you and just walk really fast. So 
you're, you're making people really uncomfortable and feel like they can't just freely walk up the street, you know, relax and... Which is interesting because, you know, when it comes to the homeless issue, what Doyle seems to have uh, tapped into is, or maybe he feels this, and others who support him feel this, that uh, something socially inappropriate is happening. And the people who are homeless are saying, but, you know, isn't it inappropriate that I don't have a house? Yeah, just a little. <laughs> I think that's a bigger issue than, um, than begging. Yeah, I think that... Um, that's we can talk about begging and we can talk about the lifestyle but it all comes down to that is that there's not enough housing so that desperately needs to be addressed and I mean we've been banging on about this for so long and in that time it's got worse and worse and worse not better so someone it's pretty pathetic in in my view it's pathetic Um, like every year I watch politicians on the tv saying that they're doing all this amazing stuff promising things they get elected in and they promise all this stuff and I just think yeah but look at all the money you're spending on all these things that aren't that important what about homelessness hospitals education all this stuff so have you noticed in your real life all the places that you normally go that it's all changed for the better what's that sorry well you you know when they say that all these things are happening and they're promising this and they're doing that uh, in your normal everyday existence, is that apparent? Not at all. No, everything's cut. Funding's getting cut everywhere. It's it's getting much worse. Even services that are supporting people who are homeless, or not even just homeless people, people from marginalised backgrounds. Um, it's tragic what's happening to the services, and they're they're needed more and more because there's more people in need, but they're getting cut. So. They're just not there anymore. They're so limited. So people who used to be able to rely on getting food vouchers and emergency accommodation and all kinds of things are now getting either nothing or very little and they're still in need. So it's getting worse, if anything. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And in the studio, we've got uh, Dr. David Broder-Giles. I've got your entire name. You've got a really big name. (laughs) Um, I've got uh, two extra middle names besides that too. (laughs) Your parents must have loved you. Um, There were were lots of them, actually. (laughs) They all got one. (laughs) Oh, is that right? Yep. Oh, that's so cute, David. Anyway, David's in here because he's organising, and that was a a talk, a a part of the speak out at uh, March the 3rd, outside the uh, town hall, Melbourne Town Hall, Mm. just to bring people up to speed. Uh, And it was part of the ongoing campaign to bring public awareness to the No Homeless Ban, uh, well, the Melbourne City Council, directed by uh, Robert Doyle. This is a pet project of Robert Doyle, who's the mayor, to uh, remove homeless people from the streets. Mm. Now, uh, there was a 28-day campaign period of uh, people putting in submissions, which mm-hmm. he assured everybody at the meeting that he would read and and listen to. Mm. Uh, he's mm. a flexible man. <laughs> he wants data. But anyway, you, mm-hmm. you've decided to fill the gap because there hasn't been a forum about this. Well, that's right. Aside from the City Hall, where uh, a certain number of people were limited to three minutes apiece. That's right. Uh, uh, we haven't really had a, a town hall, a proper town hall, where people can... Uh, where people can have their say about this. And also, we really haven't had a chance to hear uh, the arguments 
about it. We, so, you know, aside from the coverage in, uh, you know, on 3CR, the mainstream press have given it pretty thin coverage, uh, in my humble opinion. And, and when they have covered it, it's always been in very two-dimensional terms. You know, so there's just not time to really get to the bottom of some of these issues. You know, some of your uh, interviewees there were raising issues that the mainstream media have more or less ignored completely. You know, this the larger question, for example, of uh, the the trend towards decreasing services. Mainstream media hasn't covered that at all, as far as I can see, or not in connection with this issue. So... Um, no, there's much more uh, focus on uh, blaming individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Herald Sun, uh, to their eternal shame, ran a, a piece. I don't even know how those people can get up in the morning. There's sludge all over their faces. Oh, look, I, you know, I try and be as charitable as I can, but reading the Herald Sun, you can't think anything but that it's a deliberate smear tactic. You know, the, the last piece I saw in the Herald Sun, they spent, you know, about uh, 18 column inches uh, vilifying one particular fellow uh, oh my goodness. who'd been arrested and who'd oh, been supposedly abusing passers-by. And they, it was the most salacious, sensationalist coverage of this poor fellow who was clearly having a mental health breakdown of some sort and got arrested when what he needed was crisis counselling. Uh, you know, and they spent 18 column inches on that and then at the end of that uh, very briefly talked about the ban. And, you know, so what we need is better. So uh, actually, that's a concerted campaign. That's part of a concerted campaign. Well, look, I... I have a hard time reading it as anything else. Uh, as I say, I, I try not to make assumptions about people's intentions, but it, you know, but uh, but that's how it reads. I mean, yeah. the thing is that the, the Doyle uh, to bring people up to speed, mm-hmm. as I said, the, the the idea is that there should be move on laws. Nobody who's homeless can lie down and uh, in the pa- on mm-hmm. pavements. Their uh, belongings will be taken away, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and also there will be a. This is a classically Stalinistic uh, term, <laughs> a re-education program mm. to uh, stop the to um, encourage the public not to be supportive of. Uh, mm. homeless people. That, that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Uh, and I, I wonder how much education is actually included in that education campaign. What we're hoping to do this coming Friday, uh, the 17th, is have an actually educational day. Uh, so it'll be a sort of town hall style. We'll have a panel and then questions and answers. It's not a whole day. Relax. It's 6 to 8 p.m. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> on Friday, March 17th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub, which is a great little space. It's just across the road from the uh, market, big market. If you haven't been up there, you catch that tram on Elizabeth Street and then you go through a side door. It's uh, on the other side near what used to be uh, Ristorante Victorio, but it's <laughs> now some sort of uh, Chinese restaurant. But anyway. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We'll have five speakers. Uh, must I'll, I'll speak. Uh, we'll have three people from local... Uh, um, local agencies who uh, who deal with homelessness one way or another. Uh, uh, well, one, one of the interesting ones is Richard Foster, who used to be a former Melbourne that's City right. councillor. That's right. So we, uh, we've, we'll have a few people, former councillor Richard Foster, uh, and then Melanie Raymond, who works in various services around Melbourne, uh, various homeless-related services, is a powerful advocate and is on the homeless homelessness advisory committee. Which the council did, before they put this uh, a bylaw this uh, complement of bylaws forward mm-hmm. hadn't actually ad- asked their advisory council. That's right. So, uh, so they must be robable. Well, we'll we'll see what she has, has to say about it on Friday. You know, but so we we'll hear from essentially we'll hear from experts about the ban. We also invited every member of Team Doyle uh, who voted for the ban to come and speak as well. 
and I was quite surprised that none of them uh, none of them wanted to come. They all uh, they all either either flatly refused or were not available that day. Oh, isn't that interesting? So uh, if they've they've had their chance to come and defend their position and haven't taken it. Uh, we also invited the Victoria Police, uh, who uh, they they wrote back and politely said that it's not their policy to comment on such things. Uh, however, uh, Vic, uh, Vic Police Chief Graham Ashton has publicly commented on this before. Uh, and but co- in the Sun Herald? Uh, oh, in the Age too. In the Age. Uh, same comments. Uh, so, so he has publicly commented on this before and said some terrible things about homeless people uh, and some patently untrue things, uh, which I can say he, he, he some falsifiable things. Um, which is fascinating because they're cowards. Not to come to a meeting like this to ask uh, to, I mean, it's not like it's going to be a uh, personal attack. But well, uh, it, yeah, they're, they're they're claiming certain things. They should actually be able to explain themselves. Well, the, uh, then they've been given the chance. So, uh, so Team Doyle and Vic Police have have politely refused to come and give their uh, give their arguments. So we may just have do, to. Do you think that they don't feel that they need to explain themselves? Um, look I, again, I don't want to make assumptions, but I. Th- I think they're probably they're probably smart not to because I can't think of a defensible argument uh, for what they're doing. I think I, I can think of some convenient things to say, uh, but if you look at the history, if you look at the research about these things, uh, I, I know uh, a lot of scholars who've worked on this from various angles: legal studies, anthropology, sociology. Uh, there's I don't think there's any. There's there's very little support for this sort of thing. Because what will really happen is, I mean, I, I was at that mm-hmm. meeting and uh, there were a couple of people who were advocates who were legal, worked for various legal mm-hmm. areas. They were just saying that you're basically going to mean, it's just going to mean that more people who are homeless are going to have more uh, brushes with the law. Absolutely. And so therefore, there's, um, I mean, for the individual, it's going to be very arduous. And for the services that support them, mm-hmm. it's going to be incredible. They're going to be overflow. It's going to overflow their mm-hmm. services. Absolutely. Uh, then there was the business about uh, all you're doing is moving people out to unsafe areas mm-hmm. because homelessness isn't going away. Someone said something really funny. They're going to ban homeless people homelessness. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, oh, that's fantastic. They're going to actually supply people with <laughs> homes. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. That's right. I mean, what what really needs to happen, obviously, is uh, three different levels. On the Above all, the housing market is just inhumane, you know. With oh, in fact, it's just being reported on the front paper mm-hmm. today that uh, mm-hmm. investors, as opposed to owner occupiers, mm-hmm. have now done a new surge into the Australian housing market. Mm. Yep, that's that's a global thing. That's you know, cities like Melbourne, uh, the other cities I've done research on, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, New York City. They're all really good places to invest. And is that how? Uh, and uh, is it comparative to the level of homelessness as it increases? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, homelessness is directly proportional to rent. Rent goes up. <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. Well, exactly, exactly. Oh, you but, mean it's not because they're morally or somehow or other corrupted as individuals? Uh, <laughs> I know that's a, that's, that, but that does need to be said to some people. Um, it, you know, it's not an individual problem. It's a problem of of. Housing markets, the only thing everybody has in common who's homeless is that they can't afford rent somewhere. Uh, There are other things as well. That rent, you know, mm -hmm. like people, it's been an ongoing thing, you know, uh, the arrogant ones 
as I, I'm beginning to call them, <laughs> the arrogant ones, stand there and say, there's pathways for these people. There's pathways for these people. Oh, but have you been to see some of the pathways? <laughs> I uh, love the term pathways. I mean, how yeah. outrageous. I, I, it's I, like a roadmap. Well, that's right. That's right. It's, it's, it's a metaphor that uh, I suspect a public relations company came up with for uh, some city council at some point that's then been picked up. You know, in Seattle... The, uh, the city council uses the same term, pathways out of homelessness or pathways to home. Uh, and what it, and it sounds so nice and cosy. Well, I mean, yeah, that's... It's good. And reasonable it, and scientific. It, it is good politics to, to name a thing that. And what it, what it really means is, um, in a way, it, it means control. You know, the, uh, uh, because there's only one pathway. And in Melbourne, it's a... You know, and, and it's the pathway that the city prescribes... It may not be the pathway that uh, that works for you. Uh, I don't know. Some people are probably sitting at home saying you can't be, you know, you be- can't be picky if you've got no economy. Yeah, but it, and and of course that's. But then actually, if you drill down, what to it, it becomes a human rights abuse. Well, you start it, looking at it because you know it means that you you're paying two hundred dollars for a room in a w- well, rooming exactly, house. Well, exactly, exactly. You've got to look at what you know, I, in in my experience, by and large, uh, people are making the best choices that they can given the options. And, well, that's what people do. You know, so what we what we have in Melbourne, for example, is a as anyone who's listened to ruminations knows, we have a a fairly exploitative rooming house situation. Uh, where the the options available to most people uh, who end up homeless are uh, incredibly expensive rooming houses that are often unsafe. They're often, I mean, I don't want to. I'm sure there are some rooming houses that are lovely. Well, you're you, you're an academic, and you have to be fair. And mm-hmm. uh, and 99 percent mm-hmm. doesn't mean all. But, <laughs> but right. anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yep. We're coming to the end here, and um, we've just got to remind people that there's this great um, com- uh, thing that you've put together for so them. On uh, Friday, March 17th, from 6 to 8 p.m., we'll have a town hall-style uh, public forum. We'll have speakers to... Uh, uh, to illuminate these issues. Exactly, to give give as much background as we can so we don't have just these kind of two-dimensional conversations like uh, like you might get in the front page of the Herald Sun. Yeah. Uh, give people... And you've got an opportunity to use the internet to put your submissions in. Well, that's right. You'll, you'll have until midnight that night to send your uh, submissions to the City Council. So if you want to do that at the meeting, at the end of the meeting, uh, we'll have a couple of uh, computer terminals. You can come up and have your say directly there. So it's 506 Elizabeth Street, the multicultural hub, uh, just across the road from the uh, market at 6... To 8pm Friday, the 17th of March. Look forward to seeing you there. That's right. Where am I? I was going to be really, really hot and do it. There he is. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the big end of town, which knows what this society needs, got together to make sure this society gets what the big end of town needs, and they knew there was no need having anyone there directly representing lazy, avaricious workers, because those short-sighted, ignorant people would introduce class struggle, class warfare to the get-together, whereas the big end of town, which knows what we all need, knows there is no such thing as class warfare, class struggle. We're all in it together and therefore the filthy bloated rich can represent both the filthy bloated rich and the evil, lazy, avaricious workers whom they so care about. And the most impoverished, like all those homeless littering our streets and distressing the good people going to the tennis, for instance. And it was International.
International Women's Day and the 90% of bloated men celebrated because they know what's good for women as well. Why, lots of caring employers have affairs with them. And the major development from the get-together was lots of gas which, when we think about it, is what we'd expect. See, gas prices are crippling big business, which must hurt all of us, and the problem is so much of our gas is being exported because there's lots of profit in exporting it. And the socialists are locking lots of gas in the ground because, all, because of unproven, stupid, stupid, stupid environmental grounds. Yet the solution lies in allowing the big end of town to get its hands on lots more gas so it can provide the domestic market. And no one for one second believes the lots more gas would join the flotillas exporting the gas they're producing now, because that would suggest the filthy, bloated, big end of towners are greedy and dishonest. And wash your mouth out, Kevin. How can we think such disparagement of those who care only for all of us? On caring for the whole world, despite the rigid consistency and logic of US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, sadly, true love never runs smooth. Just a few months after Donald's love affair with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, indeed he so praised Assange for exposing the email scandals surrounding Hillary, we thought he may exonerate, pardon him and declare the US of no longer wants to jab him with a lethal needle after keeping him on death row for 20 or so years. But now, sadly, WikiLeaks has jilted poor Donald, releasing CIA files showing they spy on just everyone. Although surely everyone knew that anyway. Everyone would, of course, include Donald himself, but let's not go there. And we know it's to protect liberty, freedom and democracy, particularly the most important freedom of all, the freedom of capital. And now, rather than exoneration, forgiveness, pardon, indeed some civil medal for extreme bravery, Donald is demanding criminal proceedings. Prepare the needle. How cruel of Julian to treat Donald this way. Although perhaps it's for the best, because Donald is opposed to same-sex marriage in principle, and thus his conscience can be assuaged. And anyway, who'd believe the CIA would ever do anything illegal like invade privacy or, as some long-haired commie lots suggest, assassinate those the US OB doesn't like? Why, the CIA would know that would be illegal. Donald himself was a victim of spying, former big supremo Barack for change, 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 ordering these wiretaps, and okay, Donald can't produce any proof, but what's proof got to do with the truth? Like those calamitous terrorist attacks in Sweden, because it accepts evil refugees, which Sweden is still trying to track down, because it knows it must be true, because Donald said so, and Barack for accepted refugees, so surely there's a clue there, and Expecting Donald to prove what he says could expose his sources and threaten the security of the free world. And it's unfair to allege the source is his mind because that would assume there's something there to, in to initiate the source. And the US OB has really important security matters on its plate like evil, evil, evil North Korea, which has fired a few skyrockets into the ocean when all the responsible countries like the US OB, which have nuclear missiles, 
missiles have decreed North Korea can't have any of the weapons they've got and North Korea, home of the great and beloved leader and his great and beloved brilliant son and great and beloved brilliant grandson raises the miserable excuse that the US of and South Korea are conducting war games on its borders including nuclear armed missiles and China has raised the odd objection to the US missiles on its borders suggesting they're a threat to its security and the US of says this shows how aggressive is China and shows why it must have a war machine on China's doorstep and we know so peace-loving an empire a hegemonic power like the US of would have no objection to China holding war games firing a few nuclear missiles off New York Evil China is objecting to U.S. trained killers, our brave young men and women in uniform, holding a few innocent exercises on the evil Chinese border. Donald was flabbergasted. I will crush evil Chinese aggression, evil people, bad dudes. Of course, Donald has the advantage of the oh-so-talented and open-minded team he has appointed to administer liberty, freedom and democracy, making it difficult to comprehend that there are people who still reckon that just because he's a turdy, oh no, sorry, a turdy general, Jeff Petty Sessions, denied contact with the evil Ruskies when in fact he had, he lied. When his very sensible explanation proves he didn't lie, when as a senator he talked to people he was not talking to people, the senator was. Leading us to another piece of logic as only one notion person, that appalling Hoonsun, can express logic over that preference swap deal with the caring business class party in Western True Blue Aussie. It's not a deal! Appalling screeched upon landing in WA to support the giant mind one notion, no notion candidates. Bit of background here. The Caring Business Class Party did the deal out of desperation, given it was, and probably is, headed for electoral oblivion. That appalling clearly thought it was a pretty smart at the time. Street cunning, rat cunning, smart, but... Both their fortunes in the polls have crashed since the deal showing it has upset their respective supporters and potential voters. So patent a fact, it obviously even registered with the mental vacuums that passes her advisers. Hence that appalling couldn't wait to get off the plane before screeching, It's not a deal! It's the sure of our support! Well, it did the sure bit. It sure pissed off the potential voters. But thank goodness that appalling cleared it up. So a preference swap deal is not a deal as clearly as talking to the evil Ruskies is not talking to the evil Ruskies. Then again, we have to take the editorial scalpel to that appalling or she'd completely dominate this segment from failing to inoculate herself against medical nonsense to telling a reporter on Monday she totally supported the penalty rate cuts for the lowest of low-paid workers, something about fish and chips on Sunday. Then next day in WA, telling a reporter she didn't support the cuts, that we need a debate on the issue, where her contribution would be invaluable, and by weeks end she was rethinking the inoculation bit after the proverbial hit the fan. She was covered in it. The problem of populists, as they now coin them, populists saying something not so popular, leaving her supporters feeling giddy, keeping up with what the hell is our policy today or even this morning or this afternoon. But thank goodness she never wavers on her basic one-notion policy. No allow! Top of the popularity poll this week. 
a sea change means plenty of change. And plenty of the folding stuff as well, for that matter. Beachside resident and former Deputy Speaker Don No Dollar returned, laughed as he scampered to the cross benches. And speaking of stuff, they can all get stuffed. Uh, yes, why the crossbench, Don? Well, it was a choice of the Socialist Party or a hundred grand. Hmm, tough choice. Joking, a no-brainer. But, but, but what about your lifelong commitment to the workers, to, to socialism? I am as committed to the workers and socialism as all of, as any of, my former colleagues in the Socialist Party. And for once, we'd have to agree with a poly. On commitment to workers and socialism, notice our union comrades, the so, sorry, Constabulary Association, wants the right, well, wants coppers to have the right, to decide on overnight bail applications, which is a bit of a misnomer given their reason is that too many accused are getting bail so they can, like, you know, go out and, you know, like, commit more, like, you know, crimes. So obviously they mean they want the right to rule on no bail applications. Finally, sadly, on a serious note, the death of our wonderful 3CR colleague Trevor Grant, a fine journalist whose politics were ignored by the tributes in the mainstream media, no acknowledgement of his dedication to, his compassion for refugees, his work on refugee radio on this station, his research and writing of a book about the Tamil persecution in Sri Lanka, his campaign to expose sport, and he was a leading sports writer in the mainstream media, campaign to expose the capitalist takeover of big sport, as a young bloke, his role as a draft resistor. We will acknowledge all that. We will acknowledge that capitalism murdered him at too young an age. The asbestos-related cancer, mesothelioma, thanks to the two major newspaper outlets and Hardys, but more, he will be sadly missed here at 3CR as a presenter, and more particularly, we will miss Trev as a delightful, erudite human being. Good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, you are, and it's Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got Humphrey on the line. G'day, Humphrey. Good day, Annie. Great uh, to be back. Yes, yes, that's right. It is sad, though, that uh, oh, no. news of the loss. But, uh, oh, Trevor's a great man, great man, yeah, great yeah. person. But, I mean, it's better to uh, be acknowledged and uh, have done the work that he's done, he did. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, in and, every area. And as uh, as Kevin said, he was. He was murdered by capitalism. Mm, well, yeah. Uh, well, as Mark said, killing for profit is no murder. <laughs> yes, well, there you go. And uh, it, we're in the midst of uh, a discussion with you about yes. uh, honouring the... Uh, publication of Capital 150 years ago. Uh, years ago this September. Um, and, you know, it's what, I mean, almost since the... Well, even before, I suppose, the time that Das Kapital came out, um, various people around the world have been saying that Marx was a dead dog, which was the phrase he used about um, um, the attitude that people had adopted towards Hegel. And he said, well... Um, well, I'm of course, Hegel, to... Hegel is a very important German philosopher, wasn't he? Indeed, well, very important for the whole of the way in which Marx and Engels developed their views of the world, often in contradiction to his, but always with respect for the, for the achievements. 
so this notion that you know, that there is now Marx is a yet another dead dog um, is something that um, you know, that we're going to contest a bit this morning. But we need to look at a couple of the contexts in which it is coming up. And one of them is the one you mentioned, that this is the 150th. There'll be a lot of books coming out and a lot of discussion about it. Next May, I think, is the 200th anniversary of Marx's birth. So for all those reasons, there'll be some discussion around the place. And so therefore, the anti-Marxists, the anti-working class forces have to get in early and start deflecting any serious discussion of Marx's contribution. Yeah, creating creating the... uh uh, the the opinion, uh, setting the tone of the opinion making. Well, indeed, and we saw that um, in this um, magazine, the Australian Spectator, which is the Australian offshoot of this English magazine that's been going for, for even longer than Marx, about 250 years. Um, the Australian version has a few Australian pages up the front, which are really an indication of the shallowness of supposed conservative thinking in Australia. They had a cover... Is that an oxymoron? Uh, It shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be, should it? It shouldn't be, but I'm afraid... I mean, there are, in the United States and in in the UK, there are people who, I think, you know, would seriously fall into, into the category of serious conservatives with a small c. Um... (laughs) But um, Giles Alty, I thought, I mean, I thought Giles Alty was dead, I have to say. (laughs) I mean, he used to be, well, someone who attacked modern art uh, in the pages of The Australian, and then he seemed to have disappeared. And there there he pops up on the cover of The Spectator um, with a stake driving it into Marx's heart in his grave. Um, and, you know, this is the cover story. And I thought, oh, God, I can't imagine what Giles Audie would know about Marx. Well, of course, the fact of the matter is when you open the magazine, he knows nothing. <laughs> so the P, P, um, it's a bit like that thing about uh, biting um, uh, people's uh, kneecaps. You know, the man is uh, obviously a peon that has to attack somebody who so cowardly that he's been dead for something like 100 and whatever years. Yeah, well, I mean... I, I mean <laughs> And, and what does he actually do? He paraphrases two articles that have just been in The Australian. Ah. This is the best he can manage. So, And The Spectator not only publish this, but they give it the front page. So you do have to ask yourself, what are the politics behind doing that? And they are, as I've just said, the need to make sure that their own supporters are really brought into line early, that they are reassured that Marx is a dead dog, um, and therefore nobody has to think about anything. Um, but I was, so... very, I was very interested in the other example that you brought forward, the man that, uh, who, was brought, who was used during uh, Thatcher's neoliberal rise. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Tell me about that. Well, Matt Ridley is a popularizer of genetic determinism, mm. fundamentally, that, that, that everything that happens is in our genes, um, uh, you know, not just in the kind of physiological sense, which is bad enough to say that, you know, that people, um, you know, that 
that all of the diseases that people now suffer from are entirely the result of a genetic inheritance rather than, as you were saying before, the consequences of the environment that capitalism has created for large numbers of people. Um, so that's the general line. But it means in terms of social policy that we don't have to argue about where <laughs> we don't have to do exploitation anything. comes from. <laughs> no, that's right. That, that everything is in the genetic determination. So we just go to war because we're genetically programmed to do Because we like so. it. We do it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's um, what humans do. Yeah, so, you know, so he had an article in The Australian um, attacking, you know, saying, oh, Marx had been gone for 100, you know, 150, 100 years, 150 years. Uh, it's, you know... It's it's time time we pay, stop paying any attention to them, and of course they're not game to stop paying any attention because, of course, Marx still has a great appeal to people because of what he has to say about the nature of the capitalist system. But it's not just and that. That's why I mean, Marx he, is he, still alive. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, he's actually applied his incredible intelligence to discuss something in a manner that had has got uh, depth and uh, relevance. Extraordinary. Well, uh, I mean, this is, you know, and, and that's the, yeah, Hegel, in a sense, is really a dead dog in terms of everyday, everyday popular discussion, whereas Marx isn't. And the reason is, is that Marx committed himself to the interests of, of the poor and the weak, and that analysis, as you suggest, that ability to look into this system, to see beneath the surface, to see what the inner structure is and how it works, that is still the great contribution to us. And that's why he's still alive and that's why he's not a dead dog. And that's exactly why they have to keep trying to drive a stake through the heart of the, of the memory and understanding of what he has, he and Engels and others have bequeathed to the working class movement everywhere. Yeah, Extraordinary person. I wanted to go just a little bit before yeah, you continue. Yeah. I remind people that you're t listening to Solidarity Breakfast. It's Annie talking with Humphrey McQueen. Uh, I was, uh, I read a book recently about uh, English archaeology, and the person who wrote it had uh, been an archaeologist since what they call the New Archaeology, which discovered that the English had a history before the Romans turned up. And uh, so he was part of the whole group of people who did simulated, uh, did versions of early houses and stuff like that mm. to see how they worked. And he has a section in that about, he references during the Th Thatcher period, there was this propaganda campaign that, uh, uh, that basically uh, was also used in used uh, archaeology to reinforce and bolster uh, neoliberal Thatcher concepts, which was uh, very difficult for the people who were actually real archaeologists. So it, it, it's exactly the same propaganda campaign. Yeah. Well, we needn't do it today, but one of the great, well, in a sense, the founder of that school, not just England, but in the world, was an Australian Marxist, Gordon Child. Yeah. Um, so the beginnings of, well, I mean, the foundations of what in those days were called the analysis of the history before there were written records. Um, That's right. That, that aspect to it. So, But this, these, these, these uh, uh, de uh, de determinants are like trying to fit a fat foot in a very small shoe, basically. <laughs> well, that and worse. 
<laughs> you'd have to say. Now, now look, um, when we're going to talk about Marx in these ways, it's important, of course, to look at some of the things that he was saying. One of the other attackers in this is that poor old man, Kevin Donnelly, um, who gets dragged out or drags himself out to talk about education. And, and he claims that what goes on in education now in the schools and what's got to be stopped is a kind, you know, is an inheritance of what he calls Marx's nonsense, that, you know, that is the determinant of the school. God knows what he's actually talking about, because clearly he's never read anything that Marx has to say on education, and indeed I think he'd be pretty shocked if he, if he actually ever got around to doing so. Um, because some of the things that Marx says, uh, if I just give a quote, one for the Communist Manifesto, the combination of education with industrial production. Yeah. And then 30 years later, Marx says, an early combination of productive labour with education is one of the most potent means for the transformation of present-day society. Now, I mean, that's a whole topic in itself, but it's not the version of of Marx on education that I think many Marxists are actually aware of, that Marx's materialism says that we learn to change the world by learning how to change it. And we do that in every aspect of our life. Right from the beginning, education is not something that should just be sitting there with your arms folded. It should be an activity should be something that you learn by physically changing the world as young as you can do it. And, I mean, that's really what he's talking about there. But, of course, Kevin Donnelly would have no idea of any of that. And yet, and yet he keeps getting run because he runs the right political line about all of these things. Um, so these are the people who, you know, who are trotted out as an indication of how desperate the forces of reaction are. And one of the reasons, of course, they're pretty desperate is because 10 years after the beginning of what was then called the global financial crisis, large parts of the world are still struggling, and we'll come back to that during the course of the year, struggling to make their way out of it. So that Marx's analysis that capitalism is crisis-prone that it isn't this smooth passage of equilibria um, is still as relevant and as worrying to the powers that be as it was when he put it forward 150 years ago. Yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if you think about it, uh, one of the uh, things that they talk about in communication theory, for example, that in the 20th century, uh, all that earlier stuff where they, uh, which culminated, I suppose, in lots of ways by in Goebbels' uh, ability to campaign Germany into a fascist reality, uh, but uh, the need to create a consumerist society to try and get rid of the, the troughs of de de uh, depression that uh, happened every 15 years in the capitalist model. Well, indeed, and that was only possible by getting people to go into debt because of the exploitation that is inherent in the system. Um, I mean, I was thinking that I really should say in the light of the, of the, of the non-debate really around the cuts to penalty rates... Yeah, right. ..that, that I probably, she should probably get me back next weekend to talk about Marx's un analysis of what exploitation actually is because there is so much nonsense talked around 
you know, the union movement. The ACT, um, the unions here have just declared they're going to have an exploitation-free capital territory. And as some of us have been saying... Good luck with that. The only way to do it is, of course, to abolish capitalism. Well, that's right. Uh, cut, the, you know. cut the head off the serpent. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just one of the areas in which we do need to get back to what the basics are as to when we talk about exploitation. We're not just talking about the fact that 7-Eleven workers aren't getting their pay. If you're getting $140,000 a year, you're still being exploited. Um, otherwise, the system wouldn't work. Um, so we've got to get all of those things clear. And we've got to do it by getting into the big problem of reading Das Kapital, something we have mentioned on the program before and tried to suggest to people, well, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, um, but you're not going to do it by speed reading. Uh, you're not going to do it, I think, by thinking that you can get um, some secondary source other than the ones that Marx and Engels have provided to us. Um, and there are some little guides to get started. I think if, you've, if, if, you, if you're just starting out on this, the, there's little pamphlets by Marx. There's wage, labour and capital. There's value, price and profit. And then there's the critique of the Gotha program. All of those are very useful ways of opening up the ideas that you're going to encounter when you do make the effort, as Marx would have said, the assault on Everest to try and get on top of the very complicated analysis that he makes because it's a very complicated system. I'll tell you what, no... you've, got, you've got to admit that Engels is, the, is a hero of communication. Oh, is he ever? Yeah, he's my hero. That's right. He oh, is. Oh, no, no. And, and the and... two there, yeah. the two there, I think, of Engels to read, one is called The Housing Question, mm. which is particularly relevant these days. Um, and the other one, the one that converted, as you're suggesting, more people to socialism and Marxism than anything else. Uh, um, there were more copies of it. Um, that were published and distributed than the Communist Manifesto, and that is socialism, utopian, and scientific. And so those five things, um, I mean, if you read those through uh, and have a, a discussion group and people to talk with them uh, through, that, I think, is the best training for making an assault on seriously sitting down to read what is in the different volumes of capital. Um, but eventually, of course, you can't learn to swim unless you get in the water. Uh, so. <laughs> and are there any, um, what are those, uh, lifesavers? That's, that, they're the people from the discussion group, I guess. Well, they can be, yeah. I mean, you need, I mean, you need people to work through it. I mean, we've got a, we've got a group here that's been going on and off for about three years now, and we go very slowly. I mean, there's one chapter, um, it's only about, oh, I think it's about 13 pages. We took two sessions of two hours each to work our way through it. And it meant that at the end of it, we had absorbed an enormous amount. You know, we could have sat down and you know, got through it in 50 minutes or something, but you wouldn't really have understood the complexities of it, and you know, one of the little you know parallels that one could draw is it's possible to book a ticket for a 28-day tour of all the great European cities. If you do that, what do you see? Hotel foyers, railway stations, airports, 
um, you don't you don't actually experience anything of the place you're actually you're actually going to see. Whereas if you go, say, to Rome, and you stay still for 28 days, you don't go anywhere else. You just walk around the city, learn how it works. You actually come home with some real understanding of a different place. Whereas if you've done this speed read. Um, you really don't come home with anything except a sense of, oh, my God, I don't think I want to subject myself to that again. So going slow, taking your time, even if you don't read it all, you get more about how Marx thinks about everything, but about capitalism in particular, by mastering some key sections of it than you do by sitting down and just thinking that, like reading War and Peace in a speed-reading case, you come away and you think, well, that was about Russia. Has Capital made it to the internet? Is there a, um, an electronic version of it? Well, there's, well there are no... There's no well, <laughs> the, you used to be able to download it easily, um, but then some of the people who had... The copyright over it, the the hard copies, said, yeah. no, you can't do that to us because it means we can't sell our, our hard copies anymore. But well, it's that's outrageous. Well, it's like the Bible, actually. Well, it should be. Um, I mean, these were new editions. People had worked on them and retranslated them and things. So it isn't quite as if they were out of copyright in that sense. And we wouldn't have that available to us unless somebody had put the, you know, the money and the energy into that in the first place. But nonetheless, if you go on to various sites, including the one that I'm involved with, uh, although I'm not involved on the technical side, I want everyone to understand... Um, called uh, www surplus value one word um, at uh, oh yeah surplus value dot org dot au because we've discovered there's now another site you won't be surprised to hear called surplus value dot org uh, it's a pretty good name that we picked up ten years ago uh, <laughs> but you've got to put the au on the end and up there the um, the three volumes, uh, well, all the volumes, the four volumes and the, um, and the Soviet translation as well as the Penguin translation and some other things are all available up there for you to be able to download should you need to. And I think it's not a bad idea. I mean, what I do for our, our reading group just for myself is I download the particular pages we're going to read and then I scribble all over them. Because um, I think if you're going to read seriously, you've got to do it with a pen in your hand, um, underlining things, putting question marks, asking yourself things. Um, so it's a, it you know it's readily available, um, but as I say, you know it's something you can't expect to to you know just think oh well you know it's a thousand pages I'll read you know a hundred pages every day and you know get it over in a fortnight or something. Well, uh, you know, Humphrey, what we've got to finish it up, but I'll say that uh, perhaps all the people who are listening and who are going to go out and get their copy and they're going to read it, yes. if they've got any questions, they can send it to Solidarity Breakfast and we'll pass them on to you, Humphrey. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was going to suggest that we could certainly have a special in which we did that. Um, we could have a talk. People could ring in. Well, they could ring in. Oh, that's well. a great idea. We'll do that, Humphrey. It's a day. All right, we could do that. I don't promise to come up with all the answers. What I can do, though, is often to direct people as to where they might find the answers. Okay, well, uh, we'll give them fair it, warning. But, 
but it is a good idea. Um, and I'll get myself a producer and we'll have people and people can ring up. So we'll give them fair warning and we'll give you fair warning as well. As to, as to what, what some of the questions might be. <laughs> oh, no, not the questions. Just not the, the date questions. that it's going oh, okay. to happen. All right, it's all very spontaneous here. No, 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 I know. And there is, some, there is something, you know, I think to be said for that kind of spontaneity where one of the things I learned very much from our discussion group, that people who'd never read any of it before ask questions. I think, why didn't I think to ask that? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah, you know, that's very interesting. The, you know, I mean, people say... He's used the word there, like a simple word like progressive. What does he mean? You think, oh, I don't know what... But, of course, there's two possibilities, aren't there? Yeah, at least. Does it mean that this is, a, you know, a, a valuable idea, it's progressive in that sense, or does it mean that it is moving in one step after another? Exactly. Yeah, hey, all right, think, we'll anyway, aim for no, September. We've got all those things to do. No, we'll aim so, for September because that's the actual general date, isn't it? it, it, it it, it will indeed. But as I say, in the meantime, um, I think, you, you know, if you want to, I'd be more than happy to have one of the sessions with us, you know, next week or so about Marx's theory of exploitation yeah. because it is so important to get it clear because uh, so many people around the left, you know, the campaign slogan uh, for... Uh, there's a fair. We want a fair day's pay. There's no such thing as a fair day's pay under capitalism. It's not possible. <laughs> that and should that be a T-shirt. To, that's what we've got to absorb. We are Marxist dinosaurs. You know, they accuse us of being dinosaurs, and I always say, oh, if only we were dinosaurs. You'd be 160 dead. million years, every shape and colour and size in the world, and they aren't extinct. <laughs> they right. evolved into all of the bird life. Well, that's right. Um, they're uh, the heroes only, of, of nature. Marxism, I mean, no human activity is ever going to come anywhere near what the dinosaurs achieved. You know, you know we haven't been here for 160,000 years yet. No, no. Let alone 160 million. So when they accuse us of dinosaurs, it's a, being dinosaurs, it's an indication they don't even know anything about dinosaurs, let alone about Marxism. <laughs> Au revoir, Humphrey. Have a good day. And you too. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, it's good to hear Humphrey's voice again. He was talking about reminding us that uh, Capital was written 150 years ago. And yes, we'll have a talk back. We'll have, you get your copies. Well, I'll start too, and we'll have questions to ask the man about what Marx was talking about. Or, well, we can, uh, we can cogitate on what the meaning was and the importance. But anyway, uh, what did we do today? We uh, had Anne Summers talking about her action plan for equality for women and uh, it is an action plan aimed for 2022, which is the anniversary of the beginnings of the uh, Whitlam era, which uh, steered the boat called Australia into a modern era despite what any of the LNP people might like to make you imagine. Uh, that's the truth. Uh, we uh, moved on to talk, give you an update on the homelessness uh, ban. Uh, there's going to be a forum, 6 to 8 p.m. Friday, 17th of March, down at the Melbourne Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street. So be there or be square. Uh, this is the week that was. And uh, then we uh, went on and talked to... Uh, Humphrey, we're going to go out with, like a hero, Matt Tu Chu, 
Chow, I think, and uh, we're followed by Asia Pacific Currents. Thought it showed he wanna be a tackle, so dress gangsta girl. I'm not a gangster, the judgment feel it, let me judge me pop. Get on a heart, my heartbeat, put a chain, and man, challenge on my pocket. Get it on me, man, march to the name, clean slap, fresh mind, like a white guy. But if you ask my homies, something said, march to prince, march to breed. She's super flat, I'm a flash, said it dry. Got the platinum on my harness, put the blings on my chair. Great bricks on the road, ready for deposit. Not just cash, if a rich man's mine. Cause I can do worse, post to do like heroes do. I don't give a damn why they took a fine. When I swag it in the dial, straight ladies wanna try. Now stop it, when you see me just say hi. Cause I'm so fly. My history's crazy, but my mind is real. My history's crazy, but my heart is bright. Man, never die. Not black. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.